Hey guys, Vaughn here. I forgot to remind Steven to record this for me, but just placing a brief content warning here at the top of the show. This week we are discussing Blonde, a film that contains scenes of sexual assault and physical abuse. All of this content is discussed in the episode, so please listen at your own discretion. Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of I'm Thinking of Spoiling Things. Um, a bit of a shorter episode this week, which I say having not recorded it yet, so maybe you'll look at the runtime of this episode and go, no, it's not. But um, know that we went in with, 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 with plans to keep it short, because we are in spurious, strange time zones this time. Um, I am up early in the morning. I guess actually everyone is up early in the morning, but the morning is different ways. That's very true. Um, so Vaughn is here as always. What time is it where you are, Vaughn? Uh, it is 12.14 a.m. right now. 12.14 a.m. So the morning, then, officially. Um, 8.14 where I am. Um, so, you know, uh, though I was woken up rudely by a cat about half six that decided <laughs> that he will scream for a while, uh, which I, didn't, I did not care for personally. Um, but we also have a special guest, lit- our literary agent, our literary um, kind of like advisor, um, Kevin here. Um, Kevin or Kev. Uh, we'll, go, we'll go for Kev, I think, this time. Um, Kev, what time is it where you are? Uh, it is 3.15 a.m. 15 a.m. There you go. So I guess you win. Um, yeah, I think so. There you go. So, and that's the podcast. There you go. Short episode today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> checking in okay. time zones. It's all late. Checking, really. checking in with time zones. Um, all right. So, um, Kev, um, introduce yourselves to our wonderful listeners, please. Um, so, oh, I, I feel like we should throw some questions at you. Um, yeah, <laughs> give me a movie that you love and a movie that you hate. Go. Okay. A uh, movie that I love. Uh, Run Lola Run, a movie that okay. I hate, right. Pitch Perfect. Okay. Oh wow, okay. Well I <laughs> personally I think Pitch Perfect's quite good and Run Lola Run is okay. Um so it's gonna be a, a, a wonderful energy to the podcast. Um there you go. I think that's all you need to know about Kev. Um Vaughn, um yeah. do we have anything for the grab bag this week? I'm not sure if we do. I don't think there's anything that both of us have seen um, no. to discuss. No, I don't, so no, so no. I don't we're skipping so. the grab bag this week. We're skipping the grab bag, and we're going straight to um, our main feature, hence why there's a shorter episode, um, because all three of us had the um, the pleasure of watching Andrew Dominic's That's a word for um, Blonde. So we'll start off as we'd like to start off here, which is previous familiarity with the filmmaker. But I think we should say previous familiarity of the filmmaker the film subject, and the source of the film. Which you think would be the subject, but no, definitely is not. Um, so let's start with Andrew Dominic. Um, Vaughn, are you familiar with Andrew Dominic before this at all? I'm actually not. I've been meaning to watch The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford for years and just have mm. not gotten to it because it is also, I think, about three hours long. So that has put me off it's of a lot. that. It's, but yeah. it's a long and what about you, Kev? You seen any of his movies? Yeah, I've only seen um, the uh, the one that Vaughn just mentioned. Um, I saw it a while ago, and funny enough, this is back before like I was too invested in film, so like I didn't know it was Dominic. But that's all I've seen of Dominic, in a sense of film. I know he did uh, Killing Them Softly, but I skipped that because the trailer never. Yeah, I've 
I've not seen Killing Them Softly. Um, I've seen Chopper, which I think is really, really good. I really, really like Chopper. Um, so I recommend that. Um, really great kind of like opening um, career performance from Eric Banner, who was a comedian beforehand, I think. Um, has since been an actor after that. Um, Chopper's a really cool film. Um, I've also seen, um, let's see if I can get the title right, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, Robert Ford. Yes, I think that's 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 correct. There you go. Yep. Which is a really, really good movie. Um, absolutely stunningly beautiful. Um, Sir Roger Deakins. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I like top draw Roger Deakins. There's just some stunning shots in there. It's a really good movie about like fame, um, um, and obviously outlaw status. But like, as been said a lot, a, a, a stealth movie about celebrity and what that means, um, disguised as a western, which therefore um, makes one a little bit excited for what this person can do with a Marilyn Monroe movie. Um, so Marilyn Monroe being our next subject, I think Kev, you're you're the most um, familiar with Monroe's oeuvre here. So you start off your familiarity with Ms. Marilyn. So Marilyn was one of the first actresses I actually gravitated to when I got into film. Like I just I was always being into comedy, and I would just delve in deeper and deeper into filmography. But even though like you know I haven't seen everything because I'm not a completionist like most people, and I'm just like always bouncing around. There's a lot that I've seen, and it's just like something that's always made me gravitate to just view her work, go beyond and just see what everybody is, you know, talking about. I've, you know, from Seven Year Rich, Bus Stop, all these wild different performances. Uh, like with the film, I read Blonde three times, I think, or a few times. It's been a while, man. I, I remember that was one of the first books I read that was that long before I finished it. And you know it's actually I have a funny story um so when I was a kid and this is my familiarity so when I was a kid I think I was like 16 and I went into an FYE a store here that sells records DVDs and stuff so they had this promotion where if you bought some DVDs you got some free uh subscriptions to magazines they didn't check and care for ID so my 16 year old teenage self being very typical Joe's Playboy has one of the subscriptions. And funny enough, I actually got a sort of like reissue from that famous, uh, not really photo shoot, but like sort of improperly purchased photograph that she took in her younger years. So it was, <laughs> so I did see them. I, I stored away. I, I just feel like looking at them and just, Furthering into that objectifying nature is just like, it just makes me feel icky. You've seen it once, you it's, don't need to see it's, it again. It's glad we know that here we've, we've established that Kev is part of the problem. It's good It's good that we, <laughs> we've, we've, we've set up from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like, listen, like, she, she, when it comes to this whole, like, talk about the, icon, the iconography of who she is, it's just like, mm. people only really look at the more surface layer stuff, like the, the sex symbol the funny actress who always played the dumb blonde we never nobody really yeah. talks about some of the more like not personal but like more openly profound stuff that she's done like the jazz what she did for jazz musicians in the 50s you know helping elephants i don't know get much gay. about that i'll be honest i would like i'd like a bit of insight about that that yeah, i do so, not know yeah and then um as well you know she started her own production company and you know, but I was towards the end of her years, and yeah, when it um when it came to that Ella Fitzgerald man, like you know, 
when we, Marilyn Monroe was, when we talk about like, like when I said iconography, like she was big in that moment in the fifties and mm-hmm. we in America were still fighting further and further to get civil rights acts pushed and find better equality amongst ourselves. And, you know, Marilyn was always like just this bright hearted, equal loving person. Like she just wanted fair treatment for everybody because, you know, she's been through her own shit and she really just sees these perspectives. So knowing who she is, she's sort of like what we would call back then as blockbuster. You have in her movie, you're making money. So well, yeah, similar... she's, she's studio star, big part of studio system. So therefore, yeah, this 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 is the era of stars of star cell movies. Yep, uh, and, big time, big time. Yep, and then so when it came to clubs appearances, she's popping. But at the time, you know, jazz musicians, especially black artists, were not getting the proper due on stage. And I mean, listen, it, it hasn't been too far along since um, Billie Holiday and her struggles. I mean, listen, like it's. It's, it was still a, a thing that they had to get over and, you know, win and succeed in showing the world that they deserve the equality that they do. And Marilyn, you know, sort of like used her power in a sense of like, she would be like, oh, you know what? I wouldn't come here again or I wouldn't frequent here if you don't let her play. It's it's interesting to me then that we have uh, movies recently. I think that we all here feel very quite similarly on that we've got Elvis that came out and really overplays that element and kind of like falsifies that element in the wrong direction um, to try and kind of like skirt around Elvis's um, evident ex- exploitation of, of musical stylings and of culture um, to repackage it in a certain way. And it very Boy. much postures it as if he was and of women. Um, and then, and yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I'm, the whole child bride segment is an interesting part of that movie. Um, and then we've got blonde completely ignoring that element um when it could have it seems from what you're saying that like positive story about that because it doesn't fit into the narrative of its characters it's very fascinating to me what narratives of their characters these films go for and how they are just not the people they are about yeah but there's even a difference between blonde and elvis in that at least elvis is ostensibly based on it is better but it's also based on elvis's actual life whereas blonde is based on a fictionalized book and is not necessarily (sighs) pulling from reality so i I am interested in learning more about the book itself because from what i can tell most of what's in the film is pretty much made up and i don't know how that translates into the book or what I'm, i'm more curious of what the wider goal or aim of the book is since obviously mm. i find that whatever ended up on the screen is, is a whole different story but yeah so I did, the, the book's an interesting one so so as, as kev has very much made it clear so kev from your little background you are i would guess like that young man in the 22nd row that sees her as something more than sexual more than just our marilyn monroe as uh, our good friend elton john once said um so this 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 book blonde it is called blonde as well right yep it is. and joyce carol oates mm-hmm. um what is it? I like. Is 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 this is this literary nonfiction, um, so, like a room one's own, or is it just fiction? So it is. I would say, at like seventy five percent fiction, the events wow. in which the film. So all the films that 
she, they say that she performed and she acted in those existed. The timeline is correct. It'd be wild everything, if they just like, started making up movies. <laughs> like, yeah, everything else is wrong. Ghostbusters, <laughs> bam. But pretty much everything else is wrong, except for another moment, which is actually not even in the movie. So there's okay. a crisp 100 pages that is dedicated to Child Bride era Marilyn. And personally, in that book, it's also a very tough read because... That's not a thing that I'd like to have in this movie, I'll be honest. I I can understand why. I mean, listen, but you know what's crazy? So as much as uncomfortable as it was reading sort of the descriptive nature of what a 16-year-old girl thought sex was with her husband who was 21, the way she interacts with her husband, the way she falls in love with the cinema, the soul, the modeling, the soul visual presence of making people happy that happens right before she gets forced to be married when she's having all these like different aged boyfriends like a 42 year old detective like some other dude but they weren't she wasn't kissing them really like with the tongue but she would just do whatever like drive with them no sex and that's what's described in the book and because they all like treated her with like, and, some and you're telling us so this, so this, so this is not a, a fictionalized portrait bit from the book, then. So this bit is is based in fact. So yes and no. So we know that she's you this know. Book with her so story. I, I, is is this book good, Kev? I guess is my question because the way you describe it, it sounds heinous to me. It sounds like a thing that I have no interest in reading. Um, so it's well written and. In, in, oh, what does that mean? That 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 phrase. That phrase. Okay, okay, like, okay. So, gets, so, like, so, 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 if you were, since you're an English, that's teacher. like gets into like Triumph of the Will is like well made. And I'm like, no, it's not because it's evil. I'm like, no, no. So, so, there so is so more to construction than literality. Yeah. yeah. So let's say you're an English teacher, and this was the essay you were given. Let's and... say. Let's, let's say that's the case. <laughs> I always forget you're an English teacher, but uh, so you're given this as an essay, and you're looking at this just like as like an example of just somebody's work it's just she just knows how to write but the problem is she also doesn't have a clear sense of like vanity like Marilyn while this is trauma filled in the novel she still is given some depth she's giving she's still given that sense of brilliance and creativity stuff that's not even in a movie would have actually add a lot more agency to her like for example she studied Strasbourg she understood it. She Okay, that's re- interesting. Yep. She was she loved poetry. She was a great poet. The moments that she's studying at the theater and, you know, sort of like training to be Arthur Miller's Magda, that is so extensively detailed. In and every detail mm. when it comes to the acting is more focused on her emotions. How she's sort of trying to use that to replicate into the performance itself. And that's sort of like really absent in the movie because like you're oh, just completely, being, yes, completely. Yeah, because it's just like quick shots, like with the "Don't bother to knock." It's there's so much more to it, but they just show that infamous final scene where she's finally carted off back to the mental hospital, with she's holding oh. the razor. But the issue on that end is just like it's like when you really get into the crux of her just looking into herself because jo- Joyce Carol Oates writes this in so many different perspectives and, and she uses That's like, my next question. Tap, yeah. like I was I was yeah Is, so, so it's so are parts of it first person then from Marilyn's yeah so yeah so whenever you she switched between first person but especially from the perspective of different like characters not just Marilyn Monroe 
Um, but at the same time, like what was shocking to me, and especially a big contrast, which we talk about how this film is heinous and as well the book. Yeah. The, listen, whatever people were talking about about the movie, it is nothing compared to the book. So, like qualitatively, like, uh, uh, like, but you like the book, right? The, like, you've, you've, this is a book that you've gone back to a few times. Yes, it's a book that I find rather interesting in very moments because there's very because there's a lot of parts in the book that I actually think are wonderful. They're great. They really encompass what I wanted like to read and what I wanted to sense in terms of like what this is going at, especially with the movie career. Yeah. But the moments where you have to see how she gets these parts or the aftermath of some of the transgressions of her past, it's just like, it's too much, you know? And it, and that's what I'm saying. Cause it's like one thing that surprised me and like, a, uh, just to continue, I thought was the film is not as sexually graphic as the book or the movie's not as sexually graphic as the book. For example, with Dolan Balatanak, they only show the scene and she didn't get that role by that rape scene we're shown. She, so she gets raped by the lead actor in the book at a hotel. They don't show that. Remember in the scene where um, Bobby Cannavale's uh, Joe DiMaggio comes in showing the naked pictures or whatever and he gets mad at her and slaps her? Yeah, so I actually want to talk about that scene um, because that, that like... And I feel like we'll, we'll, we'll go for the scattershot approach because I feel this 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 film is I think let's let's get our cards on the table. I think um, all three of us to very extent hate this movie. I think that um, oh very much Vaughn and I really really hate it. I think um, Kev's a bit more kinder to it because of perspective, but definitely does not like the movie. Um, but with ne- very negative angles. So I think I think rather than reiterating the conversation around this film just sucks it's exploitative because it obviously is i think it's more interesting to like unpick bits of it and really explain why they don't work um because we're, we're presuming the listener has either seen the movie or does not want to see the movie and therefore it, something's benefited from here's how things are presented so that scene is really is one of the really interesting scenes of the film to me because it's it's so terribly handled in terms of perspective so you talk about perspective in terms of how how the um the book takes on multiple roles. This kind of tries to do the same thing. Um, And it starts this scene really powerfully um, by matching our camera in terms of its physicality in the space to um, our abuser as he walks in. So it's it's framed behind him um, and it shakes with anger with him. So it sets him up as this like force of like danger and destruction, which is to an extent, the right way to do this, considering what's going to happen. So he's negatively framed into it. Um, you then realise that he is there because he is, like, upset about... Well, up- upset is putting it lightly. Um, about these naked pictures of... I will say Marilyn Monroe, and I keep saying Marilyn Monroe because I don't think that... It doesn't sound like the book is about Norma Jean, and the movie is not about Norma Jean. Um, Very much so. Um, he goes in... Um, and she is, and then the camera, and then the styling of the of the shot changes completely to this very kind of like classical. Um, we are now just like mid range, just like, just we we've gone from just like shaky camera angles, to just like there you go. Here's just a shot of just naked Marilyn on the bed, and that the whole conversation is about these kind of like unauthorized <laughs> pictures of using the image of just like naked Marilyn, and then it th- there is a, a sexualization to this scene for sure, and that we have that just like anger down to this and then when the, that this scene ends in what it 
it puts as like a tender moment. Like there, there is an there is an explosion of like emotion in the middle of it, but yeah. the the way the scene wraps up is a moment of like soft emotional release. It 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 it's false. It rings false, but it starts the scene with anger and it ends the scene with a more sensitive portrayal of this man. And it's so cinematically confused about how to present things. Which is a thing that I think Vaughan brought up in his review very, very well in like a throwaway sentence of this film just throws stuff at you. And that goes back to it the does. thing you said earlier, Kev, about things being well written or well made. And I'm not trying to have a go at you, I'm trying to have a go at like this 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 like conception of there are bits in this movie that I could just go Pause that. That's well made. That's a, fans- a fascinating composition. Oh, you're playing with aspect ratios. Oh, you're playing with colour grading, etc, etc. And it does that all the time. But when you do that without intent, without meaning, and when you apply that to things that are heinous and things that are disgusting, for me, that is not well made. That, that, that's just poorly made because it is just like completely random. I don't know if that's true of the book. I've not read the book, but that is my thought on the film. Um, Vaughn, can you expand on that? Because I think you wrote about that really well. Yeah, I, the film, I just feel like if you strip away all of this hyper stylization and the way yeah. that it just constantly is flipping aspect ratios and changing color grading and all of this stuff, if you take that away, you just have a really, really terrible and hateful movie. And I feel yeah. like it thinks that it can get away with it because it makes it look good. And it, I, I feel like it's so transparent yeah. to me just watching it. I was like, and it doesn't even work very well because I feel like, We've just I think it makes it worse. This... I think it makes it worse. I think 100% I, I makes agree. It worse. I feel like we've reached this like apex of this kind of stylization where you started with movies like something like Mommy where it has like one very specific yeah. thing that it does where it changes the aspect ratio at a critical point in the movie and it happens like twice and that's it. And then other people took that idea and tried to do things with it and now we're at this point where you have a movie like Blonde where it does it every other scene and things are constantly changing and it just becomes completely incomprehensible what even the point is you know it, it makes grumps like me be like maybe like the digitization of film was a mistake like this like used to be like a big deal <laughs> right like, like different film stock and actually like fiddling with like like with actual like practical tools to make these tools happen and now you can be like i mean obviously always at the time you could like edit things to to create like and, it, and most aspect ratios are artificial um because you can just like put borders on things and attach things later and even like a lot of films are projected with letterboxing attached to them and you, right. you'll hear stories of people that go to watch movies and like a few years ago when movies were projected and people would forget to put the black bars at the top of the bottom and like you'd see like booms just coming to the movie and be like oh, I don't think there should be a boom here and it's like oh the cinema just not projected properly so yeah you can fiddle with aspect ratios for a long time but this fluidity of editing um that is so core to our like modern age of film that to link back to one of the first films we talked about this podcast um the french dispatch of it just seems just like just throw it's when I talk about Hong Sang-soo, which I do a lot because I think he's one of our great filmmakers, um, I talk about how he uses the techniques of film poetically, like as devices. And Dominic in this film and Wes Anderson in that film have the techniques of film and just like throw them out like they're just an infant learning about poetry for the first time. And just yeah. like, that's a metaphor, that's a simile, that's alliteration, like bam, bam, bam. And I, was, I watched this film with Emma um, and there came a point where we just decided like a gameplay was being like, what is the reason behind this choice? So it oscillates between black and white and colour. And I was like, is it black and white when it's cinematic Marilyn? I is it colour when it's Norma Jean? No, doesn't line up at all. I, I mean, Kev, do you have a theory about it, its, its use so, of colour grading? Yeah, so he's mentioned that the the black and white are supposed to feel more like snapshots. 
in her memory. But some of those scenes are really artificial, the most artificial. And it's then like, some of like the really kind of like eroticized imagery, yeah. um, which I will say is, is complete color. Um, so I, I will record at the end, remind me Vaughn, um, a content okay. I wanted to drop at the beginning of this of this episode, um, because I think it's very, very necessary because we did just oh, like, yeah. jump into some really negative stuff, which we need to. Um, but I do want that to be um, presaged. But so the the first rape scene of the film, um, which is a great thing to say about a movie. Um, terrific. Um, like, I've seen people talk about how um, the stuff in the film is not sexualized. I completely disagree. And it's about, like, how things are framed. So, Oh, very much disagree. Yeah, that's... Yeah, the first rape scene in the film is artfully presented with this, like, kind of, like, just, like, just... I, I can't find another adjective. Like, there's just, like, arty cuts to just, like, really kind of, like, well-framed, like, bum shot. And, like, it does, like... Sam Raimi e kind of like quick cutting around of it is just like so constructed and filmic in a way that because film is a beautiful art form, therefore beautifies it and falsifies it and therefore is eroticizing it. And we was talking to Emma about this about like the presentation of sexual abuse and the problem we have with sexual abuse as was talking about not the thing itself is a semantic overlap between what sexual means and what sexual abuse means there's an unfortunate semantic overlap there because in one of those sexual is used for clarification of the kind of abuse and usually when we use the word sexual we mean something else about sexualization and that's a very important line yeah and this film is totally uncognizant of that of it it presents all abuse as sexual in a way as opposed to the literal description of this is abuse that relates to mm. sex the act right. and that's the really the other problem with the stylization is because the content itself is constantly like horrific like the entire movie mm. is just constant grief and tragedy and trauma but the, when it's presented with like this these you know the one-to-one -one aspect ratio and you frame it all artfully and you put this ethereal yeah. piano music behind it it's like it makes it look beautiful Oops. and it's it just it's so yeah the the contradiction of it is just horrible Oh, it's, yeah, I, and I don't know, I was, from the beginning of it, so um, it's it's a film that definitely kind of like soured on me more and more as I was watching it, um, because I think it, it really saves like it's overtly negative stuff for the back half, And I, but I think it's more that just, it just doesn't go the places that you think it will, um, and I mean, when we start off with just like pointless tragedy, and we set up the motif that's going to be the motif of the movie, which is the um, daddy fascination, um, which is a note that it doesn't do right a single time in no. three hours. It's really, really disturbing um, that she's defined as someone that just calls men daddy. And that's just the thing that she does. Um, I'm sure there is a, a, a greater context around that. And the one praised element of this film is Anna Darmus' performance, which I don't think is very good. Um, I don't think it's very good either. Um, I don't think it is very good. Uh, here, I think for what it is, take away everything else, she gave it her all, and I commend her for giving something. I don't I, commend her for giving all to this movie, though. Like, I, yeah, I, 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 it's like, I say, come on, like, it's like, I, whoever gave her the script and told her it was a good idea, like, poor girl, but like, listen, like, I saw she gave it her all, like, the accent was in and out, so it didn't really bother me as much. But it's just like she is not given the right script because, like I, like I said, yeah. But Aust Austin Butler's not given the right script, and like that, that is like a, a really good standout performance true. In, in a crappy movie. Well, and there are I mean, different like, kinds of crappy here. Well, here's the thing: like I, I, I thought it was good, but it's not anything that like made me say, 
let's give her a award or like listen oh, she's gonna when, get them though like she probably not the oscars but she she'll, will she'll not get, she'll get, she'll, I, an award ceremony is going to give her stuff for this i don't know if it's going to be like one of the bigger ones but this is this is a thing that will have just like little leafs on its um well, it's yeah, yeah i mean the controversial aspect of it is going to boost his popularity but the big thing too it's like and, and this is what i said multiple times the film is just very ticky tacky with what it's picking from the book and what it feels that is deemed more cinematic a lot of the movie stuff is taken we don't really see much of the misfit uh sub but we see a lot of some like it hot we see a lot of um Actually, do we see a lot of... No, we don't even... Some Like It Hot, I think, is the most we see out of we, every production. Because, we don't... We don't I'll, I'll be honest, we don't see much Some Like It Hot at all. Like, like well, we, we, well, we have the first performance of the... When she goes crazy at the... Uh, trying to do the number on the stage, and then you have that famous um, bathroom scene when she's trying to, like, walk with the sink, and she's trying to do all that wash. Trying to oh, that 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 scene again. I, I I do not know how grounded in reality that was. I presume not at all. But the way they just try and take their fictionalized themes of the film and throw it over her performance to imply another degree of instability to her. Right. This film is so obsessed that she's unstable. And I'm like, this is one of my favorite movies. This is one of my favorite performances. Yeah. She is why that movie is brilliant. And how I, dare you? And I'm gonna I be found that stuff so frustrating. Yeah, for it, it was crazy. It's like. They go in so much detail into Niagara, and yet he didn't choose oh, Niagara. Oh god, yeah. Like, like this I... book spends so much time on Niagara and the asphalt jungle, and he doesn't even want to touch it. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Those moments were actually really good in the novel after the rape, but <laughs> um, uh, it's. Hard to say some that. like a hot stuff is also some like a hot stuff is, is also just really ridiculous because of just again the overt fictionalization of the film and like how I, I go back to how false it feels. So we cut to the um, opening night of some like a hot again one of the greatest movies. I love, I love absolutely yeah, adore some like a hot. Yeah. It is absolutely yeah. phenomenal. Um, I think it surprised. I don't you know I. I, I I've talked about the phrase holds up before. It's it's an easy casual phrase to use. It doesn't really mean anything because it is like canonicizing certain views to film over time. But to use shorthand, it is a film that holds up way better than you think it would um, from my uneducated perspective. Um, and it ends with one of the most iconic and hilarious <laughs> yes. jokes for cinema. And the way that this movie shows it is it shows just that ending. And then it has just this, it's like, it's so hard to describe just blank, audience just sit there and the curtains close and they just stand up and clap and I'm like that was a joke that's the joke in the film right. why so is weird. no one laughing why is no one reacting like this like this like it's like that 1984 apple commercial like it's like a totalitarian <laughs> regime i went for someone to come in and like throw something at the screen and be like you must break out of this like it so this movie is way too influenced by two david lynch films that i'm going to talk about later way way too influenced by them and takes those aesthetics and places them on a kind of reality so that the two being inland empire um which the woman in trouble movie and obviously fire walk with me and i'll talk about why the movie is not as good as eva to a great extent and that scene with it's just like um oh what's it called again i forget i'm just i'm, I'm, I'm losing words time lapse with it's like time lapse of the audience is very like on paper lynchy and weird and then in execution it's like what is this why is this why is this black and white yeah why is really just the question throughout the entire movie really it's just like 
why is any of this happening in this what is the structure of the movie why is it three hours what does it go through the structure is just nonsensical i i mean it's, it's boring so, as well it's so we hard going back to parse to out films that are heinous but also just really boring <laughs> very much this is not like his non-linear approach man like the linear approach and it's just so much easier for me with everything like I, when you go for non-linear like you, you gotta have an angle to it but like this is just well, yeah because to the me angle non- is aesthetic. non-linear is eschewed linearity it's that there is a linear story here that we that we are subverting so as much yes. as i'm not the world's biggest pulp fiction fan like that film has a narrative that then is chopped up around and presented mm-hmm. to you in an engaging way to make you unfurl that narrative. This just is just defined by ellipsis. This is just like, we're here, we're here. It's not non-linear in the way that it, it hops around her career, as in back and forward and back and forward, which would give some contextualization. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's just like skipping through a memoir written by someone that did not know her and just every now and then pausing and being like, let's, let's film that bit. Right, it's just like things just happen and there's never any connective tissue through any of it. It, it, It's just like a thing happens and then the scene ends and then a completely different thing happens. It's totally unrelated and then maybe we'll go back to something related to the last thing later. And at a certain point you just kind of give up even trying to figure out what the goal of any of it is. So I started my review with a focus, because I like to do this sometimes, I like to take out like a scene from the film that I think is really indicative of the wider film. Um, and often with films that don't work, you can really get that. And with yeah. films that are really, really good, you can get that. When a film is brilliant, you can go, this scene has everything, and this is a great way of unpicking it. When a film is really bad, you go, aha. So I, I picked out the, the Arthur Miller scene. Um, I'm also, I, this is everyone of the film is just absolutely stupid. That Matt, Adrian Brody, who we as established in the podcast, is scum. Um, but Adrian Brody is playing Arthur Miller. They call him Arthur Miller. The credits refer to him as the playwright. Piss off. Like That's so stupid. <laughs> completely it's like the same off. with like all the characters. Like they're named in the movie, but then in the credits they're not named. It's like It's like <laughs> what is Make this? a decision, like, right? If yeah. you're gonna do that, do that. Like which we'll get to Spencer later, because I think Spencer is worth talking about in light of this mm-hmm. movie. Definitely. Um, and how Spencer does really clever stuff in that kind of location, yet still does name people. Um, because it, it, it plays into the fantasy. Um Direct from the beginning. So this Arthur Miller scene. So she sits down with and Kev. You can remember the name of the of the play because you, you is it is is the play called Magda or is it that it's uh, the character is Magda in a play? The character is Magda in the play. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the play at the moment. But I'm, yeah, it's um she's trying to perform as Magda. In this this play is actually very personal to Arthur Miller. So it's like when he <laughs> so comes to her in that restaurant. <laughs> Yeah, so everybody when he comes to her in that restaurant, he's like, "You're my Magda," or "I'm gonna call you Magda." Like, it's supposed to be some. That's supposed to be like the more significant turning point, where it's like, that's where the relationship grows. They marry. That whole relationship was just so butchered. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the problem with the structure is that it's it sets this up like, okay, here's this really pivotal thing, this play. It's important. It's like. Oh, we didn't this, see the play, this, <laughs> Right, this conversation, this whole thing is like the foundation of their relationship and then their marriage, and but it's just like that scene happens and then they're married and then they're in a relationship and the play is just forgotten about mostly. And it's just like... It really <laughs> reminds me, Vaughn, and I'm sure you'll agree, of Tall Girl 2. Um, so in, in Tall Girl 2, the, the, the enduring drive and conflict of Tall Girl 2, as I think we all know, is that she uh-huh. has massive stage fright but she's obsessed with being in the play and she's obsessed and she's spending all her time being in the play to the extent that it ruins her relationships. And the movie just shows you no scenes of her actually being in the play. So like, well, I don't believe this because it's not in the movie um, of the amount of like 
things it wants you to believe are happening in Blonde, but has no interest in showing you are actually happening. No. And it cuts through. So to get back to this, this first Arthur Miller scene, which is the one point where I was like, oh, interesting movie. So she sits down and they have a conversation at, at this cafe. It's in black and white because why not? And sure. it's a shame because the black and white is, is, is very beautiful. Like That's the, how the, they roll the, the dice the contrast, for that scene. The contrast is, is, is stunning. And they, there's some really great stuff with like how they frame stuff. But again, it's used for ill. Um, yeah. And they're talking about the play. And they actually give um, Marilyn a perspective. I'm going to keep saying Marilyn because the film treats her as Marilyn. Um, and she gives this very interesting critique about the agency of Magda in the play. Um, and makes another critique that links it to how it reminds her of a Chekhov play. Um, and she mentions Chekhov and Arthur Miller just, like, just goes, who told you that? Um, and in that scene is the reliant thing. It's the one time actually lets the audience do some thinking. It's very shallow thinking. But the idea of being like, because a woman said it, this must come from somewhere else. The expectation, and because Marilyn Monroe said it, it must come from somewhere else. The, as Kev said earlier, that she's this ditzy blonde, therefore someone must have fed her this line. And this, like, disempowerment of women from the expectations of men. I mean, disempowerment is key for this film. And then she gives this really interesting kind of, like, talk about what the character is actually like, what it actually means. And there should be a moment of understanding for Arthur Miller and for the film going forwards that there is, is a not. creative and insightful person here that has been not allowed to be that person but always was that person and instead Arthur Miller finds the one thing that's about him and it's uses the meat cute to start their relationship yeah it's I mean that you're right that is that is a great scene to kind of hinge the discussion around because it is very much the one point where you get that brief glimmer of like what the movie should be doing which yeah. is giving her you know that you think the point of the movie and even how the movie markets itself is that it's supposed to be showing you the side of Marilyn Monroe and Norma Jean that, you know, people didn't see the real person yes. behind it and it never does that. And then it no. kind of does it for one minute and then it just completely forgets about it. And that's just, it's just like, Which, what? As I touched in my review, there is again, this it's, it's, it's this key dichotomies. The film is on the wrong side of every time. There is such an important difference between having no agency and therefore being taken advantage of or being taken advantage of to the extent that your agency is taken from you and better films understand the oppressed communities that is what happens of right. they are forced by their oppressors to to lose a sense of autonomy and they put in place where they are not allowed to have autonomy in this movie the whole way through as I said in my review, a line that I was quite happy with is, she is a damsel waiting to be in distress. That's the thing. She just exists as this kind of like naive, passive figure that the world was always going to destroy. It's a Lars von Trier movie. That's how he writes women. And it's why I hate all of his movies, of that sense of, here is this kind of like angelic figure or naive figure or overtly stereotypically feminized figure that is going to be there as this nexus for hate and abuse that would just circle around it as a way of giving foil to the hate of abuse in a way that doesn't actually make that hate and abuse mean anything and doesn't show any agency or humanity. And I don't think either of you, I don't, I don't know if you, Kevin, have you seen Firewalk with me? I have not. I actually haven't even seen Twin Peaks except for the first episode. Oh. Well, as I was saying, we should all just, I mean, Vaughn's going to start with Firewalk with me. As I he agreed. <laughs> <laughs> but Firewalk with me, um, which is, I rewatched re it before watching this and was just absolutely blown away by it and watching it again of it, is the fictional story this should be. So obviously, Twin Peaks, and I'm not going to spoil things, is about the death of the iconic Laura Palmer and this like all-American girl and the death mattering and like the beautification. And that led to a lot of like negative things in media that were, that were influenced by that. And Fire Walk With Me 
positions itself as the story behind that of like what happened to this girl and fire walk with me is a really interesting film about victimhood what it means to be a victim what victims we care about and don't care about and it is a film that gives so much agency to its main character um shows the events that led up to her death but makes it clear that really horrible things did really horrible so really horrible did really horrible things to this person this person was a person that had humanity and that lived and breathed and did stuff and made mistakes and did negative things and there's just there's no aspect of that in blonde at all there's no humanity no. to either norma Jean or Marilyn Monroe. she is just there to be ethereal like daddy machine that occasionally has bizarre and very upsettingly connoted conversations with fetuses that stuff i mean it I, I we can't talk around that forever because it's so no. un, it's so integral to the film for you mean you mean the Gaspar Noe <sighs> bit of the movie the the end of irreversible bit of the movie spoilers it's... for the beginning slash end of irreversible <laughs> it is just so awful and it's like it's just that much worse to then look at it after the film and it's like all of that is just so completely fabricated mm. and it's just like what is what end is this achieving by putting all of this in the movie it just it's just makes it just like this disgusting pro-life thing and it's just like and the complicity the complicity it gives her it it implies that she causes her own like um that she causes her own miscarriage at some point like through her clumsiness like the the arthur miller beach scene is just absolutely grotesque absolutely grotesque so I don't remind me if this is said near the end when here when they tell arthur miller but in the novel so when she has the miscarriage, yeah, and furthermore, they explain to her that she's had way more than one abortion. Like I think the number was like twelve. I so don't think that's mentioned in the movie. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, so yeah, um, she had a shit so ton of abortions in this novel. So they sort of try to bring like an idea of like maybe this was her sort of judgment based on the kind of life she's lived and sort of the stresses around her, like to keep a sustainable life if she were to have a kid, but then it at the same time, if she could It just puts all the weight of that on her in this film, which is just and then so like, disgusting. And then like, it was just a botched abortion. And I'm like, oh, it's, this is like getting my, this is not the conversation that should be having. Like, I don't even know why she put that in. Like the first abortion in the context of the novel, it sort of makes sense because of the money she's making the kind of, you know, sustainability she's aiming for to kind of stardom, like, she could have the kid. She could be a mother, like she's always wanted. But, like, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna deter her, like, from continuing for a year or two in the business. And maybe then they wouldn't want to work with her. Like, it's... For me, though, it just goes back to what we keep saying about modern film. And, like, Emma was having this conversation with me as well. Of I'm going to link it to, again, because people that listen to podcasts have, have, have heard this, of um multiverse of madness and um other marvel movies that have this obsession with like defining femininity through motherhood and like that's just the the thing they grasp onto and it's really deeply horribly offensive and this one is so unaware of the iconography it's dealing with of like when you have this symbol that stands in for because Marilyn Monroe hugely is like one of the key symbols because of how she's used as a star of like in your face femininity of the the hyper feminine of the hyper-presented performative femininity because she was performing her femininity and was deeply, deeply aware of that. And then when you tie that to 
the just like reliance on the needs to be a mother, the need to have a daddy this whole way through is just grotesque when there is like no sense of the artificiality of that, no sense of the weight of that beyond it, it, it thinks the weight of that is sadness of the unachieved sadness of that. I mean, maybe I'm overreaching, but that stuff really, really, really angers me. No, it's, I mean, it's terrible. And I think it's like the movie makes it, the, the presentation of it is like extra gross because it's this pointlessly constructed falsity around a completely different reality where it's like mm. she did have struggles with pregnancy that were a result of disease. Like there were, like this mm. is something that she struggled with but was not in any way close to how it's presented in the movie. It's because it's her and, fault the whole way through. All, right. all of the weight is on her. Right. It's like all the weight is on her and it's like she is constantly making these constant choices and the fetuses are talking to her about oh, how sad bit. they are and it's just like, it's just horrible and it's like this... I, I mean, it's just... The... It's there to be filmic gimmick. Again, it's, it's what we yeah. put, again, so bring it through. It's like, it's there to be like striking filmic thing. Of uh, and Yeah, it's it, it's a Lars von Trier movie. It's a Gaspar Noé movie. Just like pretending to be something way more kind of like classically arty. Mm-hmm. It sucks. It, <laughs> it, really, it, it really, really sucks. It is... It really, really sucks. Like, irredeemably sucks. The, the thing I keep coming back to or the word i keep coming back to is just that it is just a hateful movie it is mm. just it it hates its subject and it's it hates marilyn monroe it hates i mean not that it barely touches on that person but it hates norma jean you know it just it oh it has, and no, it's just it, like, yeah, it has no interest in what that even means it's just like why did you make this in any way I, it's just insane to me so to bring Spencer into the fold, because I think it is such an interesting comparison point, because I've seen people I think so too. praise this movie in the light of Spencer or make the point, and I, I get it, people like different things about movies, that's absolutely fine, and I've seen people be like, people like Spencer but hate this, and like they see there the being like similarity. So I want to make that very, very clear about why I think Spencer works, this film does not work at all. And I mean, Vaughn and I, at least on record, really, really liking Spencer. Yeah, Spencer's um, great. Spencer, for one knows the constraints to place itself in of it picks an event and a period and therefore allows itself to be a microcosm you have to have a microcosmic structure if you want your film to be a symbolic portrait of a person not just here's just the things that happen spencer from the beginning has that element of this is a fantasy and it uses overtly fantastical elements the whole way through that can only be fantasy whereas the fantastical elements in blonde for the most part can either be read as this is her delusion or as just things that could have happened. So there is one point in Blonde that I quite liked, where it's like, she's walking out of somewhere, I forget exactly when, and then she walks into, like, from room that is fine to, like, room being completely in fire, and then she finds herself in... So she walks back into her memories, basically, and she opens up the drawer where she was kept as a child. And, like, that's a, a, a powerful bit of subjective filmmaking. But for me, the logic there is, that is her internal experience. Whereas Spencer shows things to you as an audience that can only ever be fantastical and makes it clear this is there symbolically. Um, Spencer is, again, more aware of denied agency, gives way more to the character, and the real thing that Spencer has over this is Spencer knows, and knows that we know, that this person died tragically, and that is why there is a movie about them. That yeah. Their death is the reason why they've been made to culturally matter. Spencer realises that is a problem. And that people overtly denied by their death is a negative thing. So therefore, it doesn't do that in the film. It gives a moment of joy 
that is fictionalized but is a symbolic moment of release to give that person something that shows ultimately where its affections lie. This movie is just a three-hour crawl until her death. And it, it, it just glorifies in that. Like, we don't need to see this. It's not a film about her life or her personality. This is a film about, like, it's it's like Irreversible. It's a ticking time bomb until the thing that was always going to happen, happened. And it's, again, she was either too pure for this world, oh, woe is her, or it's just like, this is just what happens, the world is cruel. Uh, yeah, I think the important thing with Spencer is really that it draws such a distinct line of, like, this, this is fantasy, this is expressionistic, this is not trying to depict a specific yeah. reality and i think that the the structure and location of it works so well because it's like it's not trying to do that standard thing of like we have to just tell their entire life story from start to finish and it takes that specific moment and when you allow that specific moment to breathe it's like that's how you humanize that character because they are just existing as a person mm-hmm. and everything that's unfolding around her creates that environment whereas blonde does that thing where it's like it starts at the beginning and then it goes all the way to the end and you have way too much in between to ever allow a moment to breathe and like actually let her be a person and most importantly it never draws that line there's never any point where it's like don't take any of this as reality it just presents it like it is reality and it's so far from it and it's like how many people are going to imagine that any part of this is real which, which links back to our Moon Age Daydream conversation as well. Obviously, Moon Age Daydream is a very, very different movie, but there are these films that treat their subjects as icons and tell the story of iconography in ways that are very open to misinterpretation. And most people yeah. will misinterpret these works. And I am I am a person that thinks that films should be more aware of like when they leave misinterpretation. Like I, I mean, I like Fight Club a lot, but I do think that Fight Club as a film needs to do more about it for its aesthetic of avoiding misinterpretation because people say film's so widely misunderstood i'm like well it's misunderstood for a reason because i think it invites its own misunderstanding um and i think the the opposite example is not starship troopers where i don't get why people misunderstand that film because to me that was very obviously about something and all the iconography (laughs) in it so there's a difference to me of this film is so clearly this what are you talking about and the no i get it because the film does play into that and the film likes the aesthetic of it and this film is so all aesthetic and that's the problem isn't it because marilyn monroe was treated as an aesthetic object as kev said at the beginning like very well and this film is an aesthetic object that wants to be aesthetic and beautiful and because its form is so in line with what should be torn away about marilyn monroe down to the norma gene it just it can never do that because this film is glamour and glitz and artistry artistry of the lowest case a imaginable yeah it i don't even at a certain point you just i i literally took a break in the middle of watching it because it is three hours long and it's just so miserable to watch and i was like i just need to stop because it's just all misery the entire time and it's like man i wish it was all misery the whole time that's a great movie i wish it was misery (laughs) Misery absolutely rules um kind of an aside but i'm curious what you thought of i was really thrown off by looping back to the some like it hot stuff when it presents them filming a scene and they splice the actual film with Ana de Armas's performance that was very bizarre to me it was so yeah. jarring that's all that stuff is weird and then occasionally like it does a camera angle so like the the the, the one very overt shot of it because obviously I'm not as familiar with Marilyn Monroe as I, as, as I could or should be perhaps but it's that her getting ready laughing and leaning back like photo shoot and the way the camera just like moves around be like look 
it's that moment. So the way that the film goes out of its way to present the real moments you know are real in this completely fictive portrait is grotesque. Right. And yeah, Vaughn, you're right, like just like splicing her into it. Just just strange. Just strange. And it's, it's weird to me. It's I mean, it's like such a minor complaint in a movie that's got so many larger problems, but like I have no problem with her accent in the performance. It, it never really comes through in, in a disruptive way to me. But the fact that it cuts from that performance to just very clearly not her singing these songs is so funny to me. It's also just so jarring. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense or work very well. So mm-hmm. to go to the performance, why I think the performance is not very good, I don't think it's bad, I think it's just not very good, is because it, it only ever, like engages on the level of artifice and i think it's only allowed mm. to do that by the script and the direction but when the script and the direction are this way i don't think you can get a good performance so i just don't think it's a very interesting performance um whereas again the austin butler one i guess there's there's, there's more room there in the film to do that and there's it's a different character to work with there is actually some dynamism there that gets out of it i think the one thing we've not spoken about but i really want to is Actually, you know, two things. So first of all, a point that Emma made, which I think is really, really astute, and I think is worth mentioning. Um, so this is actually like to criticise Spencer as well, to an extent, and to criticise Jackie, which obviously is less a scene, but is the precursor to Spencer, of Emma made the point about these fantastical biopics about women from male directors, and how even when they are good, it's just another example of yeah. I'm using women as a plaything, and I can go, but it's fantasy. And outside of maybe Elvis, the biopics about the men are not that. I think Elvis kind of is that by mistake of it is the fantasy of Elvis, but it's another way of just men positioning themselves to make these movies where I don't need to actually make it about a film. I'm making my about woman. Sorry, I'm making my actual movie, and it just so happens to be about this person. But really, I'm talking about blah or fame. Or the price of this, or the patriarchy. It's just yeah. I don't know. No, it's it, it does feel like a running theme at a certain point where you're just like, can we can we stop? Can we take a break from this? It's just yeah. I mean, at a certain point, even the stuff that is that comes out on the positive side, you're just like, I don't really need a constant stream of these movies. It's mm. it's because yeah, if it is just you know at, at a certain point that a male director having that fantasy of being allowed to kind of build whatever they want with these women it's like yeah life has tapestry yeah for sure Um, let someone else do this or just don't do it at all which goes back to like what may be my final complaint because i just hate this movie um is the utterly uncomfortable positioning of this film how it takes its central theme to be this search for fatherhood and the need for definition by fatherhood in this film where Andrew Dominic has gone out of his way to position himself as the auteur and this is my movie and I have like metaphorically fathered this film of like having that as the void in her life and then positioning the film in that way from its creation is very very telling and very very grotesque and it's just it's so much worse because like fuck Andrew Dominic who's just out there like yeah I also just don't give a shit about her at all I uh, didn't give a shit about this movie. I don't care that it's all fake. And it's just like, fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. To position yourself that way and then also not even try to care. It's like, you can't even bother like making up any excuses for what he did. He's just like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. It's because like, a part of it, I, a part of me feels like when he wrote that script, he also expected a minimal budget because... 
if somebody were to make Blonde, a feature film is not it. Yeah. If you were to make it miniseries, if you were to attempt it. But it's like, for example, taking going back to iconography. The whole relationship with the ball player is just that one scene of abuse, the marriage, the meet, and then like five minutes with the parents. In the novel, there's a moment where they're going to Japan. The ball player is going to help with the inaugural season for the Japanese baseball league. But when Marilyn gets there, she starts to notice how big her sort of presence is there, how well she's known, how well she's loved from the movies. Yeah, well, that's, that's more interesting, definitely. And it's like they describe her coming down a plane to a sea of Japanese fans just going ecstatic just to get a glimpse of her. And especially like when she's at the hotel and when she walks out the balcony, you just see the descriptive nature of like, damn, like, I wish this was in the movie because like, it goes back to a lot of the stuff that happened in the earlier part of the book too. Like, you know, like when she was married as a child to the guy, the guy always wanted to leave her to join the army and he eventually did. And Elvis. And yeah. <laughs> and then when she was in Japan, at one moment they asked her, Hey, would you like to perform, you know, like a, a song and dance and liven up the troops who are fighting in Korea, you know, the Korean War aside, because that's just a whole other discussion of problematic issues. Um, it, it's sort of like seeing Marilyn get up on that stage and sort of like sensing like what she dreamt of as a kid, being like this strong woman able to fight in the war, yeah, able to uh, help. allowing her to be something in a way that this it movie never something. allows her to be anything. And like that's one true moment of like happiness that you get in a book of her, where she's like, "Yo, like I'm, I'm, I'm somebody." And then that's just not there. It's that's like, what, yeah, it's, sorry, Paul. Uh, that's what, like, really kept coming back to me, like, watching it and just, like, why it ended up feeling so, like, hateful to me is I'm like, it just seems so cherry picked to remove yeah. every possible moment of joy from her. And, like yes. I said, it's just all tragedy and misery and i'm like why is she just never allowed to enjoy just have anything it's like there's no i'm like this is why she never feels human at all because it's just one emotion the entire time and she's never allowed any levity or joy and even the one thing that she is supposed to love like being an actress and making these films all of those scenes where she's on set are just turned into like oh she freaks out and she's upset and she ruined the take and it's just like fuck i just it doesn't show you why why you would care about this person right apart from the fact that they were a target of abuse and therefore you should innately care but the the abuse is so fictionalized and made fictive through craft that it just oh, an absolute absolute mess i hate it i hate it, I hate it. lightly I hate putting it, it. <laughs> an absolute mess <laughs> Should we segue to um, any listener mail, if we have any? We do have some listener mail. Excellent. Our friend Lorcan is back once again. Hello. I hope you didn't watch Blonde. Ooh, I got bad news for you. Up, up no! <laughs> um, 
Okay, hi, Stephen and Vaughn. I'm sure the next podcast will feature some blonde talk. And then here, here it is. It does. Yes, uh, maybe some a, Amsterdam, a Frank, too. Uh, Frank Ocean no. talk. Uh, not no, featuring I'm, I'm... Amsterdam. Never featuring Amsterdam. Uh, <laughs> fuck that guy. Yeah, no, we are. N- I am not not watching Amsterdam until <laughs> it either. is available outside of cinemas in a way that I can not give it money find. for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fundamentally, like I no, should not I see that totally podcast. Agree. But no, David or Russell should not be allowed to make movies. Um, um, I also anyway. don't really like his movies anyway. So <laughs> it's continue. fortunate for me. Uh, I listened back to your Licorice Pizza podcast. Talk of the Master brought me back a decade. I saw the Master and Silver Linings playbook on the same day and Dominic's killing them softly a week or two later. These were important films and or filmmakers for movie fans who came of age at the start of the 2010s. Something they featured and had in common with several other movies at the time was a sense of, I would call it, new Hollywood revivalism. Empirically, Dominic assisted Malick on the New World, PTA Altman on a Prairie Home Companion. This period of history, rich in contrast, success stories, and cautionary tales, has been a go-to for prestige American films of the last decade. Emblematic, to my mind, is how all of PTA's films since the master have been set between the end of the Second World War and the mid-70s. Yeah, now, I think he was asked recently if he'd, like, he'd make another non-period piece, and he just, like, he just has no interest in like making contemporary film now, that he just like likes playing in the period. Why not? Good for him. Mm. Um, now there's Blonde. Indeed, don't worry, darling, in the mix as well. Blonde <laughs> is a huge misfire while being a film of the scope and ambition. Yes, Logan, my man, my man! <laughs> that I've been there for as long as I've been into American cinema. There is still some aesthetic pleasure to be had from Blonde's mid-century ambiance, but mm-hmm. the all-too-predictable 20th century stations of the cross-narrative does make me question <laughs> whether the well of thematic material from those few... Post-war decades is running dry at the moment, or is it the concept of the arrogant writer-director who won't hear dissent in pursuit of their next assassination of Jesse James-sized success that has earned greater scrutiny? Blonde is fairly maligned. Detroit was another similar debacle, but undeserved IMO. I recently rewatched it. I really like Detroit. I I have not seen. I think it's great. I only saw it at the cinema, um, and I saw a preview screening of it, because I'm a borderline. Like um, and I really, really liked it. I, maybe I'd feel differently upon revisit, but yeah, I'm here to here to stand up for that. The positionality of it's interesting, but at least um, she did talk out and say that if it wasn't for her, the film wouldn't have got made, and she was very aware that her positioning is at odds to the film. Um, but she wanted the story to be told, and that's the way they could get made. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but at least some respect to her for talking about that. Well, there you go. You have... Uh... Defenders with you, Lorcan. Yeah. Uh, I was, however, impressed by the camera work in Blonde. It felt like the camera, or Marilyn herself in a vehicle, was always in motion in the second half, which, yes, along with the score, recalls Mulholland Drive, which is interesting because you were talking about Lynch earlier, mm. uh, but also Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays, which is how you do a version of this abused woman's story without humiliating her as a one-dimensional victim, another novel that is like these new Hollywood or I need new to read Hollywood. need to read Didion. Revivalist Films is the moviegoer. It's concerned with possibility more than the dead end. Malik held the rights to make it for a long time. But maybe you guys love the movie. Nope. Or don't want nope. to talk about it at all. Uh, we did, because we had to tell everyone how bad it is. Uh, <laughs> anyway, looking forward to your next show, Lorcan. Uh, thanks for emailing back again. I'm yeah. always uh, always happy to see an email from you. Yeah, and just a, a, a really, really good writer every time. Yes. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy hearing your words. I mean, that, I mean, yeah, now I wish I'd mentioned that stage of the cross thing earlier. Like, but what a very good point. That is that is the narrative drop that it takes. And now I feel like a little dumb, a little dumb, dumb. I'm not saying that. <laughs> so thank you, Lorcan. Great email. And that's, that's the advantage of listener mail. We can get uh, some different perspectives in there. Mm. Um, and now an email from Jack. I Hi, know him. It's Jack. 
I really did not like this movie, but I love Frank Ocean's <laughs> album from 2016. Hey, I mentioned that earlier. <laughs> Do you guys dig Frank Ocean, fans of that album? Would this movie be better or worse if it was cut to albums synced up like Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz? Either way, I hope Frank Ocean releases new music soon. Love always, your best pal, Jack D. Um, Jack, I have some great Jack news Jack D, for the you. comedian? Jack D. <laughs> Let uh, balloons, Jack, Jack D. I feel like I need to inform you that that movie does exist. It's called Waves, and it also sucks. So, unfortunately... Oh, I, never, I never watched Waves. <laughs> uh, don't. It's really bad. <laughs> but it's oh, like... I, I wanted to watch I, it. It has a lot of Frank Ocean music, and it yeah. kind of does the same thing, where it's uh, a bunch of artsy shots and yeah, shifting like aspect ratios, um, like, but yeah. it all sucks, so... <laughs> it's not a good movie I'm going to disagree not with Waves I've not seen it but I'm going to say this movie would be better if you synced it up to the album because you could close your eyes and just listen to it, the album which I agree Jack it's All a right, very good album <laughs> you can just listen to that it's great yeah I like Frank Ocean I'm basic I'm basic I have basic taste I like Frank Ocean I'm, I listen to so, a lot of Frank Ocean but I like what I I'm not saying I that like he's basic I'm just saying that I have surface level taste in a lot of music and therefore don't don't know the, the deep cuts that my two compatriots do here so I'm just like yeah Frank Ocean good yeah well unfortunately no new music from Frank Ocean for all I can see I know he's going to be directing the next Travis Scott Ooh. music video and he's going to be making movies for H24 known murderer Travis Scott interesting choice interesting choice yeah but he, hey, got that right. deal with A twenty four. Oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eh, well, you know, everyone's bad. Everyone's bad. Everyone's bad except for Murph, our next emailer. Hey, I know you. Uh, <laughs> light up a fat one. Spoilers: It's Murph. <laughs> Murph, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I feel in the pop culture landscape there have risen certain figures who have influenced the entire media landscape not necessarily yep. with their Me, work for example with... yes this is he's talking about Stephen um, but with their all encompassing image because yep, the yep, image again. is what sells Godzilla, <laughs> not just I to think. The, not just to the fans but to the tabloids when you boil someone down to a look and attitude in an atmosphere you lose numerous shades of gray and ultimately what you focus no, on... No, no, Murph, says... no, Murph, the, the film goes out of its way to be in black and white at points. So it, it gets the shades of grey. It, it, it definitively, it, it goes out. It does that. <laughs> I'm going to remake Blonde, right? I'm going to remake Blonde, this this, uh-huh. this, this this tragedy story of the doomed thing that has to die. But I'm going to make it about Godzilla. Um, I'm going to make it the story of this maligned monster that's never understood. And it's going to follow very much the plot of the first Godzilla movie. With, and it's going to build up to the death of Godzilla at the end. I'm going to deal with Godzilla as an icon, never allowed to be anything but just this like iconography of destruction and a never given agency beyond just his wants to smash and destroy. Um, it's going to be three hours long. Um, it's going to be proper, proper rubber suit stuff. It's going to be beautiful. So yeah, um, I guess I'm going to call it, I can't call it rubber, that's retaken. I'm going to call <laughs> it Atomic. There okay. Because it's got to be got to be one word. Yeah. Atomic. Okay. Coming um, coming soon. Coming soon to no cinemas near you. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you, Murph. Sorry, you were, you were, Murph, you were speaking. <laughs> uh, you lose numerous shades of grey, and ultimately, what you focus on. No, Murph, on you don't. No, Murph, I don't know if you know this, but uh, some of the films in black and white. I just like Godzilla, for example. Of speaking of Godzilla, <laughs> poor Murph. He knows what he wrote by opening his email that way. Fair enough. Um, what you focus on says way more about you and what you value rather than an interpretation of a life. Wait, In this way, celebrities become alchemical symbols. Walt Disney represents animation. He represents capitalism. He represents innovation. He represents anti-Semitism. anti-Semitism. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> 
you're on the same wavelength there. For a second, yeah, I just wanted to clarify for the audience, I was not giving away to anti-Semitism. <laughs> I was weighing that we said it at the same time. That's perfect. Uh, and how how dare you focus on one interpretation without bringing up any of the others, preferably without your teeth gritted. And while there is tragedy in a human life, or in a human being being transcended in this way, part of me does feel that it's such an impossible process to undo we may all... We may as well appreciate when the use of such shorthand allows us to really tell where our values lie and where the value of biographers lie. Anyway, mm-hmm. those are my thoughts on the discourse around Boslerman's Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? In retrospect, I was maybe... In retrospect of Blonde, Elvis, it's fine. I would definitely watch Elvis many times before I uh, rewatched Blonde. Yeah. Uh, and I also did not like Elvis, so. Okay. Elvis is bad. Um, it is bad. Yeah. To to take Murph's thoughts seriously at the end there, I think, that like, yeah, where, where does the merit of biography lie? I don't know if there's that much merit in it, I'll be honest. Yeah, I uh, I don't know either. It's definitely a genre that gets less and less interesting to me as uh, the years go on, and especially this year, it's like I'm just watching these movies that are about people, and then I go out the other side, and I go, I don't know anything more about that person, or I know less about that person, like when the movie just makes everything up about them. So, mm-hmm. But then some films uh, are Malcolm X, so therefore, I guess it still works. Malcolm X is really great. great. Just watch Malcolm fantastic X. Fantastic movie. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't decry the whole whole genre because I. There I'm are suspicious some that of I the like, genre, but but yes, yeah. I think it, that there are good good works in it, but I don't know to biographize and to just narratively insert yourself into someone's life is always just a thing that is just a thing that we should be a little bit wary of. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, too often done with uh, with abandon there, with mm. little little thought. Yeah, that's I mean, all our emails for this for this week, though. So, some some, some excellent correspondence. Um, all right, so this is the the portion where I remember what happens in the podcast uh, for once, <laughs> first and time we, in three episodes. Or I know, and we and we recommend a movie. I'll let Kev go first. Kev, recommend us a movie that maybe you've watched recently that you'd like um, our listeners to watch or just show your appreciation for. So, keeping in line with biopics. I want to recommend one of my so. favorite biopics, and it's What's Love Wait, Got guess, to Do With It. Let us guess. Oh, I, was gonna, I, wasn't, no, I wasn't gonna guess that. Oh, well, what were you gonna guess? <laughs> well, I guess now. No, actually, now I'm, I, I guess I can't say it because now I've only got that film in my head. So I guess maybe I would have guessed that. <laughs> yeah, that's about. Um, what's I've, not, love... I've not seen this movie. Tell me about what it is. So it's the story of uh, Tina Turner and Ike. It's focused on their relationship. And t- for the record, you mean Ike from Super Smash Bros. Yeah. <laughs> and Tina Turner was from Ike. Super name. Smash Bros. You mean from Fire Emblem? No, no, I do not mean from Fire Emblem. <laughs> I mean we like Ike, Super Smash Bros. Yeah. So, in the similar vein, it's like you get a little bit of a grip of who Tina was <laughs> as a kid, and then you really get into the crux of her partnership with Ike, their relationship, and. Hates Marth. Does not like Marth at all. Loves Ike. <laughs> and it, it really tackles how the dynamic of a, speci- of a physical or like a physically abusive relationship within the industry itself. And it's 
just the performance by Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne are just enough alone to watch this movie. Like the the care it takes to just giving the obviously like the real life characters Ike and Tina a lot of dimensions, and it's just it's really it's been a while since I've seen it, but like it's like it's one of my all time favorites and. I still rock Tina's music. Everybody should rock Tina's music, but that's definitely one I definitely recommend to people. What's love got to do with it? Okay, there you go for all you Smash Bros. fans. Um, so, Vaughn, um... <laughs> I just I like that you could listen to this podcast and you can basically you can track Steven slowly waking up this morning as, <laughs> as the more he interjects with his jokes. <laughs> I have serious things to say about cinema. All right? <laughs> now it's nine thirty. He's ready to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a busy weekend ahead of me. Got a <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you though. So what were you? Oh, uh... uh, you interrupted me saying Vaughn recommend a movie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Stephen, I'm curious if we're going to recommend the same movie. I think so. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> then I'm going to recommend Wood Chipper Massacre. Hey, hey, that is <laughs> great! What a great, great movie. movie. Everyone's favorite, uh, hold on, I think it's uh, 1988, um, everyone's favorite 1988 low-budget horror movie that mm. only exists in uh, really low-quality VHS rip. What a film. I <laughs> I mean, it was like one of those that we just jumped into of like, let's just watch some trashy like horror. Yeah, I'll watch some trash. And uh, we had so much fun with it. I mean, it's, 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 it's really good. It doesn't give you what you expect from the title. No. No, not no, even no. close to not a massacre close. uh two people no. in a wood chipper by the end of the movie i think yeah not not a whole it's... lot um three kids their dad goes away for the weekend but one of the kids is like in college already so that one's kind of weird the dad goes away for the weekend their aunt comes to stay with them uh the aunt is cartoonishly evil and it is hilarious some terrible food shouts at them but don't worry, because the young kid got a high-caliber high caliber knife, knife in the mail. <laughs> yes, uh... we are using the phrase high-caliber knife because we use the words <laughs> the film uses when Aunt Tess describes that knife as being high-caliber. It's a high-caliber knife I guess she would know, because she, she does get stabbed by it. Yes, uh, they accidentally killed her aunt, and then uh, the rest I say, of the movie say is accidentally. Just... I don't know. I feel well, like they, they seem to think it's more of an accident than the actual footage of the film, where he they struggle over the high caliber knife, and he points it towards her and stabs her with it. <laughs> I don't want to they... say any more because, like the the film, the way it unfolds is I <laughs> never never expected in any way. Yeah, but, oh, what a good time. What a, what a really fun movie. It's the dynamics of the characters are so fun. You watch so much trashy horror like we do, if you do, and you are just waiting. It's like watching a Godzilla movie and the the, the humans speak for a bit and you're like, yawn, get back to the monsters. Um, so you're like, yawn, get to the, the microwave massacring or the witch of massacring. This movie, the witch of massacring, don't really care for, not very good. But all the bits in between, absolutely phenomenal it's all these characters are shouting at each other for no apparent reason and as being the most bizarre people cinema pure great cinema so great um so obviously you weren't going to recommend that what have you got for us no um i am going to recommend a recent movie that i watched actually um i was tempted to recommend firewalk with me um because but given that it's, it's it's due earlier um i'm going to recommend i think this I don't think I had a chance to talk about this last podcast, 
Did I talk about Powerlands last podcast? No, you did not. No. Um, I'm going to recommend Powerlands, um, which is, there's a review for it up on the website. So this is a really amazing documentary um, directed by Ivy Camille Many Beads to Sew, um, who is a Navajo filmmaker um, and when you can see this film, see this film, because I think it's absolutely astonishing. Um, it's this really important and really beautifully made portrait of indigenous communities' resistance to resource colonialism, to put it very bluntly. Um, but the many reasons why it's brilliant is, I would say the main one for me, and again, this is from, from my positioning, is how it it doesn't equivocate. It doesn't say all of these experiences are the same, but it finds connections and it is a story of hope and uprising in in the face of things. It doesn't wallow in suffering and horribleness like certain other movies do. Um, it is a very clear story about these are the horrible things that are happening and these are the things that are being done to counter them. So it works a point of inspiration. It works a point of like pointing out the social ills of the world and the need to do more. And it's a film that ultimately encourages you to think about what you can do in the world to resist about this whilst making it very, very clear of the horrible things that are happening. It's such an empathetic, because of course it is, because it's from these communities. Um, obviously the stuff about um, the Navajo community is so ingrained with that and that eye and understanding for indigenous life, yet the specificities culturally of it is just so core to the film. And um, she's a wonderful filmmaker and she finds this great way to just find the beautiful prosaic in everything and these little moments and it's as defined by living life as it is by how life is oppressed upon and therefore it presents when your identity is oppressed that living as your identity becomes an act of like resistance and rebellion an act of revolution and it's a, a powerful wonderful film for that and if you can get a chance to see it i don't know when you'll be able to just make sure so i'm going to keep talking and talking and talking about it because it's it's really really stunning so powerlands Great. No, I will. I am looking forward to checking that out as soon as I am able. Um, I absolutely will. Um, whenever that may be. Um, hopefully soon, but I will wait because you yes. have spoken about it so glowingly. Ah, yeah. So this is um, very good. Um, so yeah, um, Kev, thanks for joining us. Um, would you like to plug yourself very, very briefly? Plug oh, ahoy. Yeah, you can uh, find me on Instagram at Pigeon Montez. You can read my music reviews and other notes of worth music on the weekly Man, I wish I had blog, notes of worth or <laughs> anything related to music and sometimes movies um, and if Tyler Perry is dropping something new or a biopic of an artist is coming out expect something on the Twin Geeks <laughs> there you go our Tyler Perry correspondent um, <laughs> you, lo- you, love- you love to see it um, fabulous um, Vaughn plug yourself you can find me on Letterbox Zebra. Zebra, uh, Zebra, got it. You haven't used that in a while, so it's you gotta you gotta pick it back up. You gotta give it some okay. edge. Well, you did say to do that, <laughs> so I guess I will. Thank you for your permission. Um, five star review of Blonde coming soon, I guess, from Zero Zebra. Um, well, now it just feels like I'm giving you work, which that makes me feel a little bit better. It seems like it's okay. just effort for you. So, ah, you know, it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's a joy. It's a joy. Whoever Zero Zebra is. Um, so yeah, um, follow follow Vaughn on Letterboxd at um, Zebra slash Zebra. Um, find him on Twitter as Zero Zebra, which you'd think he'd been Letterboxd as the same, but it's not. Um, to plug myself, the only thing I want you to do, dear listener is to go to patreon.com slash the stacks on film. The only thing. And just give myself and previous emailer Jack Davenport money to make stuff. Um, you've heard us about the stacks before. Um, I know that Vaughn has been on, on stacks content. 
Um, it's everything that we do under our little blanket of Jack and I want to talk about films. It's coverage that we think, we think, I'm not saying that it is, is both funny and insightful. Um, we like to do a variety of things. And if you sign up to our Patreon, you get exclusive access to some exclusive things. Do you want to watch The Queen's Corgi and listen to a commentary track on it? You probably okay. do. The second you part, could. yes. You do. Do you want to watch, um, what happened to do? You forgot already. Jurassic Park 3, the second best Jurassic Park movie, and have us talk over it? You can. What about I Know What You Did Last Summer? What about if soon we're recording a Jason X commentary track? That sounds like the kind of thing you'd be into. Jason Jason X is the kind of movie that we enjoy. Exactly. I got a lot of movies to catch up on in the Jason franchise. What a movie. What a movie. Well, when you get to Jason X with commentary, how exciting for you. Perfect. Um, Which I think actually will help a first watch of that film, because that's... That film's built different. Um, and subscribers also can get access to our exclusive podcast, um, which we dropped the first episode of on our free feed. Uh, let's try that again, where um, we revisit films that users, friends, um, patrons exclusively from now on think that we have underrated or overrated. So I famously had Dread at two out of five based on watching it when it came out. Um, near when it came out um, we revisited that and you listened to our updated take on Dread um, I think the Texas Chains Massacre 2 episode is now available to um, subscribers and I think Event Horizon is the next one which will make Ooh. Vaughn happy um, we're going to see if I like Event Horizon this time and Great I know movie. our friends Brazy Ben and Matt have suggested some very interesting films for us to tackle next, <laughs> uh, which I'm very, very excited about. So please, patreon.com slash the stacks on film. We would love it so much if you could contribute to the madness. Yes, please do, everybody. Um, I'll kind of finish off plugging the Twin Geeks. If you are not listening from via the website, please go to thetwingeeks.com to check out everything else that we do. We've got all the Tyler Perry coverage that you could ever want. All the Tyler Perry coverage that you could ever want. <laughs> Maybe more Kev. than you would want. I don't know. <laughs> depends on depends on what viewers are listening. Um, listen to all of the our, our sister podcasts on the website, the Twin Geeks podcast, finishing up Robert Altman right now. And uh, they've got some fun stuff on the horizon that I might or might not be involved with. Who knows? Ah, I presume um, that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Daydreamcast, check that out. Don't let the Motorncast get you. You guys just released the Local Legends episode, which was yep. very fun listen. Of just phenomenal movie. Mm. Um, you can listen to more of Kev on 808s and Pod Breaks. Um, I don't know what you guys have got coming up next on that. Uh, we're going to be talking some Beyonce and Encanto. <laughs> And um, gonna be talking to <laughs> <Okay>. Coolio. Ah, <laughs> uh, of course, of course, of course. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, so that's everything. Um, if you like the podcast, give us a rating. It would be a great help. Tell a friend to don't, listen. Don't, don't give it a rating. Yeah, if you didn't like the podcast and you made it all the way through, then you can just go about your day and do nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why are you listening? Um, I also don't know how you made it all the way to the end, but I'm impressed if you didn't enjoy it, but still listen to uh, an hour and a half of this. The big, the big, <laughs> the big Kev contingent who are here for him. And like, These two other folks I don't care for. <laughs> hi, hi, Kev's friends. <laughs> we do this normally. Um, Thanks for listening, and I'm sorry, maybe? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, until next time, I'm thinking of ending this podcast. That'd be nice. 